calmly apply the brakes. This is the Poetry Slowdown Podcast, presented with joy and vigor by Dr. Barbara Mossberg. What would Rumi do and say, finding the rhyme in your day and other ways to slow down for Pete's sake and all at stake? First of all, welcome to our Poetry Slowdown. You're slowing down with me, Professor Mossberg, a.k.a. Dr. B, with our producer, Zappa Johns. And the idea for the show is from Simon and Garfunkel's 59th Street Bridge song. Slow down, you move too fast. you got to make the morning last. This show began as AM talk radio on 540 AM KRXA. People called in from all over the country, college towns, um, cities, uh, rural communities, some foreign countries, And it was very ironic. It was at noon, so I thought that we would make the morning last, literally, by slowing down with poetry. There was news at the top of the hour, as it was called, and I thought of time that way, as a shape, as a space, as a ball. It was 58 minutes in diameter, so we're really talking about curved space-time. This is really sort of quantum. We're, we're really talking about Einsteinian thought here. In my head, it was an hour. I had three breaks for commercials, and it had to be exactly scheduled. So here I was, providing a time and place for people to slow down in their daily lives and make the morning last, literally, and metaphorically for those on the East Coast and Midwest and overseas. And I was hurrying, panting, a mile a minute, trying to fit all the words in by the time it would go silent and the news, the late-breaking, heartbreaking news go on, eclipsing, our heart-shaking news without which men die miserably every day. That is our show theme from William Carlos Williams' poem, to asphodel, that greeny flower, which ends my heart rouses, thinking to bring you news that concerns you and concerns many men. And he goes on to say it is difficult to get the news from despised poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. So it was pretty paradoxical, slowing down at breakneck speed, It was funny, too, because Paul Simon's lyrics about slowing down were specifically about being a poet and engaging with the world that way. Hello, lamppost, wet knowin'? I've I've come to watch your flowers growin'. Ain't you got no rhymes for me? Da-da-da-da-da, all is groovy. So... He's looking around his world, totally relaxed and chill, counting on rhymes in every quarter on the prowl and amble for poetry around the corner. (laughs) 
Slow down, you move too fast You got to make the morning last Just kicking down the cobblestones Looking for fun and feeling groovy So I was thinking about rhymes. Ain't you got no rhymes for me? Rhymes are a sort of a miracle. How words that seemingly have nothing to do with each other sound alike, and thus call each other to mind as if they are actually connected. And so the brain thereby connects them, and each carries a meaning, something we can visualize, an object, an experience, a feeling, an idea. And to see such words rhyme, to hear such words, we instantly are connecting them, seeing how they relate. Diane Ackerman, in A Natural History of the Senses, talks about this phenomena of how we connect, how we feel that everything is uh, related by the five senses, uh, which she identifies as touch and sight and taste and so on. In an alchemy of the mind, the marvel and mystery of the brain, she says, it is just one habit of the brain, finding relations between things, especially between seemingly unrelated things. Seemingly, because all things are related in the web of life on earth. True, Quartz is different from a member of a college swim team, but they share many features, not to mention that the word quartz began with someone thinking of it as a siren, the etymology of quartz, an enchantress who lured men with a song of colors, liquid as light, but deadly as rock. If pressed, one could find ways to relate quartz and a member of a college swim team. I love this woman. Perhaps through water. The pool being contained water with a few chemicals tossed in, as is the man for the most part, as is the quartz through which a fluid light still pours, or the changing face of the man, the changing faces of the quartz, or that each began as a miniature version of itself in a dark recess and grew large. We rarely think of crystals growing, but they do, and they grow in a way we associate with babies growing into lawyers or Welders. Otherwise, we wouldn't use the term grow for both. Whew. Okay, that's Diane Ackerman. This idea about connecting. I was just reciting E.E. E. Cummings, I thank you, God, for most this amazing, for my eco-literature class. And saying it out loud, you get the rhymes you might not notice on the page. I'll say it for us, since it is definitely a New Year's poem, a new day, new decade, new life, waking up poem. And I'm going to recite it from memory, so um, if you know this by heart, it might not be accurate, but it is loved. 
I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and this blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday, and this is the birthday of life and of love and wings and the gay, great, happening, illimitably earth. How could anyone, seeing, tasting, lifted from the know of all nothing, being human merely, doubt unimaginable you? Now the ears of my ears are awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. E. E. Cummings, physicist. So it's a sonnet. It has a formal rhyme scheme. Every other line's last word rhymes in theory. So thus we have amazing rhymes with everything. But trees rhyme with yes, trees. Yes. Today and gay rhyme, birth and earth rhyme, seeing and being, and then we have no and you. And then we have awake and opened. Well, what we have going on in this kind of rhyme, in this sonnet, is we are being asked to connect these concepts. So everything is connected here so cleverly by Cummings with amazing, the message of the poem, that everything is amazing. And then when we think about trees, they are connected with, yes, this affirmation. Earth is connected in our minds with this idea of birth and new life. Sing and being. So the way that we are conscious on earth is to see. Then you and know are rhymed so curiously. What does that mean? And awake and opened. This final couplet, it almost gets by us, awake and opened. It took me a few years to notice this, I know. And so you think how brilliant, how clever he is to make us get this connection between being awake and opened in the sense of Diane Ackerman's A Natural History of the Senses. And do you know that book? She 
has a slew of books of the neuroscience of consciousness from the point of view of poetry. She is as lyric as they come, a Pablo Neruda, a sensual visualist. She's earthy. She smacks of earth smells of moss and rain and honeysuckle. She is intense. And her point is, if we open ourselves to our world, we experience the beauty and the reverence. Words can't describe what I feel inside When I see the beauty in each coming day And that song, by, sung by Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton, written by Dolly Parton. There's a method here, and everything is beautiful in its own way. I'm learning from an artist at the University of Madrid, the Flaneur Method, which publisher and plant genius and earth advocate Patricia Hamilton of Park Place Publications has been talking to me about. And I will be sharing this with you, this intersection of poetry and art and consciousness in our world. And you can find out more about this uh, by looking up Rosalinda Ruiz Scarfuto and the, Fla, La, the Flaneur methodology. And I'll be talking to you uh, more about that today and in coming weeks. But meanwhile, what we have is a way to walk on this earth more consciously if we touch, just as Ackerman asks us to look and sniff and touch and taste. And I have a slew of poems on this to share with you today on a bear and a whale and a fox and a fish and a crab by people who walk through this world awake and open and then try to talk about it in the way Mary Oliver gives instructions for life, as she calls it. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. So as Dolly Parton asks in the song she sings and wings, with Willie Nelson. When I look out over a green field of clover or watch the sunset at the end of day, I get kind of moody when I see such beauty and everything's beautiful in its own way. I see a fountain flow from a mountain or see April showers bring flowers to May. I can't help but ponder Life is such a wonder, and everything's beautiful in its own way. Words can't describe what I feel inside when I see the beauty in each coming day. What my eyes behold can't be bought or sold, and everything's beautiful in its own way. When I see the clouds form a black summer windstorm that uproots the harvest and hurls it away, in the midst of such anger, destruction, and danger, 
the storms even beautiful in its own way. When I see the leaves drop off of the treetops or see the snow fall on a cold winter's day, my thoughts seem to wander into the blue yonder. God made all things beautiful in their own way. Words can't describe what I feel inside when I see the beauty of each coming day. What my eyes behold can't be bought or sold, and everything's beautiful in its own way. And so with rhyme, it's a kind of revelation that rhyme provides us, a revelation into our world, into how things connect. Poets have their hand on the pulse of this mystery of the world, exploring the meaning of how things connect. Ian e. Forster said, only connect, that was the whole of her sermon, only connect, the prose and the passion, and both will be exalted, and human love will be seen at its height, live in fragments, no longer. That's E.M. Forster from Howard's End. It's so mysterious how words rhyme, how sounds connect us and make us see and hear What's there? The sound of words and how we put them together can add up to insights. And rhymes can be at the end of the line, like roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Or they can be slant, as we see with E.E. Cummings, trees, and yes. Or Emily Dickinson, a little madness in the spring, is wholesome even for the king. But God be with the clown who ponders this tremendous scene, this whole experiment of green, as if it were his own. And there we have clown, C-L-O-W-N, we have own, spelled the same way, O-W-N, but it's clown and own. So it's a kind of a slant rhyme. And then we have Dolly Parton. And we see that many of the rhymes there really are slant. So she's got over a field of clover, okay, but then she's got moody and beauty. Moody, beauty, hmm. Ponder, wonder, not exact. Words can't describe what I feel inside. You know, sort of, sort of, sort of. Um, anger, danger. It's They look alike on the page. So it's sort of that kind of visual rhyme, but it's not exactly a rhyme. And I found myself working with this in a poem in which I was writing about a difficult subject, my mother's failing health, her misery in an assisted living center, barely able to walk or eat or speak. And it was a, what do you wear to your mother's bedside poem? And somehow, rhyme became important to me in trying to conceive and articulate this poem. It's called After Pindar, 
Bon chic, bon genre, ode to my BCBG, holy, inappropriate dress. And you're listening and you hear holy inappropriate, like, you know, W-H-O-L-L-Y. It's holy inappropriate. And the actual title is H-O-L-Y, holy, as in reverent and blessed. And it's an ode. And what we know about odes, um, so ancient, and they were really performed as a dance, and it was a strophe, then an antistrophe, and um, then finally the uh, conclusion. So first, the strophic dress turn, that's the dance, then the antistrophe turn, then you tell me. It was on sale, shopping with my teenage daughter, Mom. It's two layers, almost see-through. Beneath is flesh-colored gauze sewn into the bodice and then flows free from the neck and arm seams. That's it. That's what's going on with this dress, free flow. The top is bright, soft red with white flowers. It is so transparent, so skimpy, so flimsy, like a cloud manifests. Weightless, this dress flutters when I turn as if there is a breeze. It has its own weather system, eddies of currents, wind squalls as I move or even breathe. Even the sleeves, little slaps bunched at the shoulder, the draping down fluted, the whole thing loose, wavy, rippling, the V-neck gathered, edged with ripples. Ladies, you know, help me out here. Then the empire waist ruffles, that's it, ruffles all along my bodice. Then a ribbon sloping down into a bow, material so light, so translucent, so fluttery, it rides my curves lightly, and the dress descends loosely to a 10-inch ruffle bordered by more tiny ruffles. So, you've got the dress, and now you're thinking of me. What, am I four or nine, or Audrey Hepburn at 16, or Maria from Sound of Music? I'm dating myself here. I've turned 60, so they say. My arms, you know orangutans, the scope and heft of their feathered arms, enormous, hang prodigiously. Now think of flesh, soft, white, floppy, arms so heavy with soft flesh they dangle when I walk. My breasts are hanging too, feeling nicely a 34G and they sway. You've seen me and dismissed me as a comic turn in a thousand films, the stout giggling ant in the background, shaking to the music. My belly sags and sways. My jowls, you see gravity at work, erosion, fault lines exposed, aging's geology. So now you have me turning, counter-turning, now the epode. Why? Why do I wear this dress? Well, isn't it obvious? I wore it in Rome, and the children rolled their eyes to one another and gave advice on how to wear the bow. My husband shook his head without shaking. Shaking it, I peed in the plaza. They fled. Okay, it happens. 
but the stains came out nicely, and I wear it today with pearls to visit my mother in her outpost in the assisted living place where we have hired 24-7 care since her two falls and perhaps one stroke three weeks ago. She has not spoken since. Last night I lay my hand on her trembling hand. Together like that, they looked so similar, hers a little more wrinkly, a few more brown spots, red from Coumadin bruising, my own hand in 28 years, 28 years which once seemed enormous, my mother of such size and heft to me, now a flutter in time, a ruffle, ripples on the surface like stone dropped in pond, her ripples becoming my wrinkles as pond absorbs our energy. 88 does not seem so far, and 28 years a heartbeat. This morning at her bed with the rails we installed last week so she doesn't fall out and hit her head hospice, which she does not know about, or she does. And none of us knows either how something like this is read. Is it clear to you this is my perkiest dress, so light it flutters when I walk? You would swear I was in the Carpinteria afternoon breeze. If it had any more ruffles, I would fly. I am a flag of some weightless nation, like a cloud manifests. My arms are bare. I flutter and flap and sag. It is so light. It billows and sways and caresses each curve. I have plans for tonight, freedom and hope and time to finesse. I kiss her goodbye. She speaks. You look pretty. That's why I wear this dress to face face-to-face, heaviness, all gravity's laws, weighted with sorrow and loss and fear in hospice. I bear it, I wear it, this buoyant excess, this innocence, good style, good class. Tell me it's an inappropriate dress. I'm living in that 21st century, doing something mean to it. Do it better than anybody you ever seen do it. Screams from the haters, got a nice ring to it. I guess every superhero need his theme music. No one man should have all that power. The clock's ticking, I just count the hours. Stop tripping, I'm tripping off the power. So in that poem, I realized in the process of reading it that the sense of rhyme of what is pulling it together and pulling together the ideas, but also pulling together the emotions, the grief, the perspective, um, the struggle to articulate, uh, what was going on to align it with your feelings. And I wonder if when we meet each other and we connect in some chemical, mysterious way, if that is a rhyme, if we realize that 
we rhyme with each other in obvious ways and in internal ways, even slant rhyme. If nature rhymes in its shapes and patterns and forms, if rhyme is a way that nature speaks. The slew of poems I have for us actually don't have many rhymes by some coincidence. In looking at our world and connecting to its creatures, but I think they rhyme the human heart with the soul of earth creatures the poet is connecting us to. So here's, here's an example. The first one is Lemon, Essential Odes, Pablo Neruda. Out of lemon flowers loosed on the moonlight, love's lashed and insatiable essences, sodden with fragrance, the lemon tree's yellow emerges, the lemons move down from the tree's planetarium, delicate merchandise, the harbors are big with it, bazaars for the light and the barbarous gold. We open the halves of a miracle, and a clotting of acids brims into the starry divisions. Creation's original juices, irreducible, changeless, alive. So the freshness lives on in a lemon, in the sweet-smelling house of the rind, the proportions arcane in the serb. Cutting the lemon, the knife leaves a little cathedral, alcoves and guests by the eye that open acidulous glass to the light, topazes riding the droplets, altars, aromatic facades. So, while the hand holds the cut of the lemon, half a world on a trencher, the gold of the universe wells to your touch, a cup yellow with miracles, a breast and a nipple perfuming the earth, a flashing made fruitage, the diminutive fire of a planet. That's a lemon rhymed with earth. And here's the fish by Elizabeth Bishop. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of the water with my hook fast in a corner of his mouth. He didn't fight, he hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime and infested with tiny white sea lice and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down while his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills fresh and crisp 
with blood that can cut so badly. I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tin foil seen through the lenses of old scratched is glass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, and five old pieces of fish line, or four in a wire leader with the swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines in a fine black thread, still crimped from the stain, and snap when it broke and he got away. Like metals, with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange. The sun cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow. Rainbow, rainbow, and I let the fish go. Rhyme. The Moose, Elizabeth Bishop. She also writes about a moose, and it's again a poem of epiphany. She says, Grandparents' voices, uninterruptedly talking in eternity, names being mentioned, they're on the bus, there's a moose outside. Things cleared up finally when he said what she said, who got pensioned, deaths, deaths and sicknesses, the year he remarried, the year something happened, she died in, child, she died in childbirth, that was the son lost when the schooner foundered. He took to drink, yes, she went to the bad. When Amos began to pray, even in the store, and finally the family had to put him away. Yes, that particular affirmative, yes. A sharp, indrawn breath, half-grown, half-acceptance. That means life's like that. We know it, also death. Talking the way they talked in the old feather bed, peacefully on and on, dim lamp light in the hall, down in the kitchen, the dog tucked in her shawl. Now it's all right now, even to fall asleep, just as on all those nights. Suddenly, the bus driver stops with a jolt, turns off his lights. A moose has come out of the impenetrable wood and stands there, looms rather, in the middle of the road. It approaches. It sniffs at the bus's hot hood, towering, antlerless, high as a church, homely as a house, or safe as houses, 
a man's voice assures us, perfectly harmless. Some of the passengers exclaim in whispers childishly, softly, sure are big creatures. It's awful plain. Look, it's a she. Taking her time, she looks the bus over, grand, otherworldly. Why? Why do we feel, we all feel, this sweet sensation of joy? Curious creatures, says our quiet driver, rolling his R's. Look at that, would you? Then he shifts gears for a moment longer. By craning backward, the moose can be seen on the moonlit macadam. Then there's a dim smell of moose, an acrid smell of gasoline. Rhyme. The Bear, Galway Canal. In late winter, I sometimes glimpse bits of steam coming up from some fault in the old snow and bend close and see it is lung-colored and put down my nose and know the chilly, enduring odor of beer. I take a wolf's rib and whittle it sharp at both ends and coil it up and freeze it in blubber and place it out on the fairway of the bears. And when it has vanished, I move out on the bear tracks, roaming in circles until I come to the first tentative dark splash on the earth. And I set out running, following the splashes of blood wandering over the world. At the cut, gashed, resting places, I stop and rest at the crawl marks where he lay out on his belly to overpass some stretch of botchy ice. I lie out, dragging myself forward with bear knives in my fists. On the third day, I begin to starve. At nightfall, I bend down as I knew I would at a turd sopped in blood and hesitate, pick it up, thrust it in my mouth, and gnash it down and rise and go on running. On the seventh day, living by now on bare blood alone, I can see his upturned carcass far out ahead, a scraggled, steamy hulk, the heavy fur riffling in the wind. I come up to him and stare at the narrow-spaced, petty eyes, the dismayed face laid back on the shoulder, the nostrils flared, catching perhaps the first taint of me as he died. I hack a ravine in his thigh and eat and drink and tear him down his whole length and open him and climb in and close him up after me against the wind and sleep and dream of lumbering flat-footed over the tundra stabbed twice from within, splattering a trail behind me, spattering it out no matter which way I lurch, no matter which parabola of bare transcendence, which dance of solitude I attempt, which gravity-clutched leap, which trudge, which groan, until one day I totter and fall. Fall on this stomach that has tried so hard to keep up, to digest the blood as it leaked in, to break up and digest the bone itself, and now the breeze blows over me, blows off the hideous belches of ill-digested bear blood and rotted stomach and the ordinary wretched odor of bear, blows across my sore, lulled tongue a song or screech until I think I must rise up and dance, and I lie still. I awaken, I think. Marsh lights reappear. Geese come trailing again up the flyway. 
In her ravine under old snow, the dam bear lies licking lumps of smeared fur and drizzly eyes into shapes with her tongue, and one hairy soul trudge stuck out before me, the next groaned out, the next, the next. The rest of my days I spend wandering, wondering what anyway was that sticky infusion, that rank flavor of blood, that poetry by which I lived. Rhyme. The Thought Fox, Ted Hughes. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive beside the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. Through the window, I see no star, something more near, though deeper within darkness is entering the loneliness. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig leaf. Two eyes serve a movement that now and again now and now and now sets neat prints into the snow between trees and wearily a lame shadow lags by stump in a hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings an eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly coming about its own business, till, with a sudden, sharp, hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. The window is starless still. The clock ticks. The page is printed. Rhyme. A green crab's shell, Mark Doty. Not exactly green, closer to bronze, preserved in kind brine. Something retrieved from a Greco Roman wreck, patinated and oddly muscular. We cannot know what his fantastic legs were like though evidence suggests eight complexly folded, scuttling works of armament crowned by the four-claws gesture of menace and power, a gulls gobbled the center. Leaving this chamber, size of a demitasse, open to reveal a shocking giotto blue. Though it smells of seaweed and rune, this little traveling case comes with such lavish lining. Imagine breathing, surrounded by the brilliant rinse of summer's firmament. What color is the underside of skin? Not so bad to die if we could be opened into this, if the smallest chambers of ourselves similarly revealed some sky. Rhyme. Wales Weep Not, D.H. Lawrence. They say the sea is cold, but the sea contains the hottest blood of all and the wildest, the most urgent. All the whales in the wider deeps, hot are they 
as they urge on and on and dive beneath the icebergs. The right whales, the sperm whales, the hammerheads, the killers, there they blow, there they blow, hot, wild, white breath out of the sea. And they rock, and they rock through the sensual, ageless ages on the depths of the seven seas, and through the salt they reel with drunk delight, and in the tropics tremble they with love and roll with massive, strong desire like gods. Then the great bull lies up against his bride in the deep blue bed of the sea as mountain pressing on mountain in the zest of life and out of the inward roaring of the inner red ocean of whale blood the long tip reaches strong and tense like the maelstrom tip and comes to rest in the clasp and the soft wild clutch of a she-whale's fathomless body. And over the bridge of the whale's strong phallus, linking the wonder of whales, the burning archangels of, through the sea keep passing, back and forth keep passing, archangels of bliss from him to her, from her to him, great cherubim that wait on whales in mid-ocean, suspended in the waves of the sea, great heaven of whales in the waters, old hierarchies, and enormous mother whales, like dreaming, suckling their whale, tender, young, and dreaming with strange whale eyes, wide open in the waters of the beginning and the end. And bull whales gather their women and whale calves in a ring when danger threatens on the surface of the ceaseless flood and range themselves like great fierce seraphim facing the threat and circling their huddled monsters of love and all this happens in the sea in the salt where god is also love but without words and aphrodite is the wife of whales most happy happy she and venus among the fishes skips and is a she-dolphin she is the gay, delighted porpoise sporting with love in the sea. She is the female tunifish, fish, round and happy among the males and dense with happy blood, dark rainbow bliss in the sea, poem, body. Rhyme. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. Gives you don't do anything at all. Go ask Alice when she's ten feet tall. After our show today, when people say, How did you spend this hour? you can say, Oh, I slowed down rhyming with a whale, and it was hot. But I have taken us poetry slowdown on a detour down a rabbit hole today because today's show is built around the theme of recent books. What would Alice do? Based on the original stories of Lewis Carroll, that's called Advice for the Modern Woman by Atria Books, and the great Alain de Botan's 
how Proust can change your life. The idea that we can learn practical things for our most quotidian challenges of life from ponderous, pondering, curious, and remarkable literature that people think has nothing to do with our actual lives. I thought of this, speaking of our actual lives, sitting in my kitchen nook with a book, What Would Alice Do?, Extracting the Wisdom of Alice, I was thinking about our show, Drinking Coffee, Surrounded by Books, and I noticed that the books I have there do not rhyme. That is, they do not seem to get along, much less have to do with the kitchen. Well, of course, there is the joy of cooking and Simquist cuisine, but next to it is Emily Dickinson, and then Anthony Bourdain, Kitchen Confidential. And I was thinking, oh, I shouldn't have them even next to each other. But then I realized Emily can take care of herself uh, with the likes of Bourdain. They are equally lusty about earthly pleasures, whether oysters or puddings. And then I have books on chaos and cosmology, and Eugenides, his brilliant Middlesex, and Lucille Clifton, and books by my friends, it frankly is a mental hodgepodge. No one belongs. No one gets along. It is the opposite of rhyme. Yet, it is my kitchen, nook, bookie companions I take up when I drink coffee, or water in a wine bottle I keep there because the label says, Merry and kind. I love that. So, on the topic of what would Alice do, just like How Proust Can Change Your Life by Alain de Botin or The Tao of Pooh, these works that extract the wisdom of a poet and translate it into a practical how-to, to-do for the affairs and difficulties of our lives, the etiquette, the manners, as uh, Joseph Conrad said, how to be. So I thought I would try this experiment with us with Pablo Neruda, whose lemon poem I read as an example of his spirit rhyming with the earth. And I thought, okay, after having read this passionate ode to the lemon, I'm not sure what would Neruda do. He would slice that lemon for sure, and he would be enthralled. He would relate it to everything that he knows, earthly and heavenly. Well, what about Rumi? Here's the guest house. This being human is a guest house Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome them and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be cleaning you out for some new delight. 
the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Well, that's Rumi. So here is our chance to know, what would Rumi say? WWRS. What would Rumi do? WWRD. First, the doorbell rings. We should answer it for sure. What do you do when the doorbell rings? Answer it. The people outside look strange and even dangerous, but we should let them in. Open the door. Yes, they may be robbing the house, sweeping us clean, but that is a good thing. That is what Rumi would do. He would say, bring it on. Dear Mr. Rumi, I have been having very distressing thoughts lately. It is hard to get out of bed. Dear distressed, laugh and welcome them. This could be a good thing. It may seem, dear listener of our poetry slow down, that invoking Rumi for hard times with his bring it on, welcome it in philosophy is not that practical because unlike Rumi, who lived in the 1200s, our world today is challenging beyond his imagination. But consider, he's born in 1207 in Balkh, which is present-day Afghanistan. His father was a jurist, a mystic. Um, the Mongols, Genghis Khan, invaded Central Asia between 1215, so he was about 8, and 1220. Rumi and his family all had to leave. So the Middle East, the birthplace of of Christianity and Islam and Judaism was under constant attack by the Mongols from the east and the Crusaders from the west. Innocent people were being killed in these invasions, including not only Muslims, but Christians and Jews. It was to flee the massacre of Genghis Khan's army that Rumi's family, he's barely a teenager, leaves their hometown in Afghanistan and goes all the way to what is today southern Turkey. So this was pretty hard, and it was violent. And Rumi, in the middle of this violence and this fear, and this emerges as this poet of compassion, of overlooking things that happen to you, kindness, piety, faith, spiritual insight, enlightened living. He doesn't write about military solutions or revenge or political power, but he's exploring beauty and longing and joys of the human heart. He died in 1273 at age 66, and people from every religion and ethnicity attended his funeral. And today, his poetry is read around the world. They say that he is the most read, the most purchased um, poet uh, in the United States. And this is a man living in the 1200s. 
So people read Rumi and they think, okay, we have a society today where people feel so divided and we are so pluralistic. Well, here's a voice that is giving us a way to think and to experience differences and expectations. And his solution, heartfelt compassion, interpersonal solidarity, and there is um, a scholar who uh, writes about Rumi that I really love, um, saying what we can learn um, from Rumi. Now, I think when we, when we read Rumi, we learn how to manage grief. Uh, his greatest friend uh, in his life, his most inspirational figure, a man that he really referred to as the son, was killed by Rumi's own younger son. And his response was to write 70,000 poems and to dance and to promote love and gratitude. He said, the horse of love has brought us here from a grand mystery. It's a privilege to be born human. So our main task in life is to live and work and enjoy. He says, let the ruby of love shine from the mountain of our body. Let the fresh water of love burst out from the granite of our heart. So he feels a divided, violent world most urgently needs friendship, forgiveness, understanding, love. He says, plant seeds of compassion in this pure land. Be like melting snow. Wash yourself of yourself. We don't really own anything in this world. Whoever brought us here will take us back as well. This hour is all that is given to us. So a recent scholar, Brad Gooch, in Rumi's Secret, The Life of the Sufi Poet of Love, says, Yet as Genghis Khan was establishing his brutish militarist state in Central Asia, an absolute threat to the religion of Islam, curiously resilient were the mystical practices of Sufism, already established in the western provinces. Um, Sufi lodges were welcome cultural outposts of refinement, and they offered messages of hope and transcendence, friendship and love, musical concerts, poetry and dance, evoking rapture. The full force of the Mongol campaigns would be concentrated in two aggressive forces, he says. But from the age of 10 until his death, Rumi coped with the turmoil caused by this churning realpolitik of the Mongols, ignoring or because of the pain and suffering caused to his family and community, he stuck resolutely to a surety of invisible hand in these dark historical events, and quotes Rumi, while everyone flees from the Tartars, we serve the creator of the Tartars. He framed the issue even more starkly. If you are afraid of the Tartars, you don't believe in God. It seems 
that the message is that love and forgiveness saves the day. It turns out that Einstein practices what would Rumi do, but that is for another podcast. If E equals MC squared, what then and what does love have to do with it? You have slowed down, you have rhymed with the poetry slowdown. And I'm thanking the Eugene team, Ashley Kim, the Oaknell team and sound engineer set up, um, Nico Moss, our producer, Zappa Johns, our engineer, oh, really? The Pacific Grove Poetry Collective, Park Place Publications with Patricia Hamilton and Rosa Linda, Ruet Scarfuto for the Flaneur Methodology, which is coming to us soon. And I'm your host, Professor Barbara Mossberg, Dr. B, thanking you for slowing down. You know you move too fast. What's in your kitchen bookshelf? Let's noodle that. Write me at barbara.mossberg at gmail.com. And I remain yours truly with the news you need, the news you heed, the news without which men die miserably every day. Not you, not you. Thank you for joining me on this life journey. Dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep Let the morning time drop all its petals on me Life, I love you, all is groovy Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-